Amen. Well, welcome. It's good to see you, kind of. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we were on vacation, which was awesome, but we got back into town, and we were totally out of cell range. And so, uh, you know, we get back into range and start looking at news and all that, and uh, masks are required everywhere. And so we had to share them for a little bit till we could go buy some or get some. But one of the things that Lydia, our, our 15-year-old, said, she said, I don't know when people are smiling at me, or, or she's smiling at people, and she said, they don't know I'm smiling at them. It's just a different different thing because you know we want to I want to show you I'm happy to see you with a smile and you don't even know it Um, but part of maybe you are experiencing some of this like me when we come back in and and then I get caught up on some of the news it's just frustrating you know frustrating with what's happening with with uh, you know the racism and all that stuff coming to light and and, uh, monuments being torn down and, and all these things happening things are crazy and as you watch the news, if you do, if you listen, as you read, everybody has a different idea of what the solution is. You know, and maybe th- this is a year where we get to vote in a, a new president, a bunch of new others. A lot of people wrap all their hopes up into that, right? I mean, if, if Trump gets in again, everything's awful. Or if Trump gets in, then we're saying our hope is often in those things. And the answer for me over and over as I'm thinking about all this, the answer is Jesus, you know, when you look at revolutions, you know, read through history, revolutions always happen, or w- when they happen, the problem is they overthrow something and then they replace it with people. And, and the problem is this searching for utopia, we're never going to get there because sinful people are always involved. But yet, the closest we can get is Jesus Christ, is submission to Jesus Christ. He, I mean, he's the answer to everything, and it, this sounds like, like Sunday school, what's the answer? Jesus um, but he is. I mean, do we have marriage problems? Guess what? the answer is Jesus. Submission individually to Jesus, and then healing that that marriage. You know, what's the the solution to racism? It's absolutely Jesus. As we fall in love with Jesus and we surrender to Him, then we view people the way God views people. We love people the way God loves people. And you should probably turn your phone off if you're preaching, because some people might call or text you in the middle. Anyway, so as I think through just all of this, what, what is the answer? And I, I go to revival. You know, I, wa- I want to see revival. I mean, Common Ground was really started from a heart to see many, many people saved. But what is revival? If, if you have a religious background, maybe the word revival brings some things to mind. A, a scheduled calendar event where a guest speaker comes and it's a week of revival. Um, and that's often been a good thing. Sometimes it's trying to to manipulate a movement or maybe revival. You you think of some charismatic outpouring of of tongues or these other things. But revival, I I actually looked it up and Webster gets it pretty much right. Revival is is a renewal. You know, a renewal, a refreshing. And that sounds like something we need. A, A revival. And here's, as you look through history, revival and I'm talking in a spiritual sense of many people surrendering to Jesus, coming to know Jesus, and that spreading, it always starts among God's people. As you look back through the history, it always begins within the church, because we have a tendency as a church uh, to get apathetic. We have a tendency to become comfortable. We have a tendency to uh, attend church and do some of these things, but let sin reign in our own lives, or, or let certain sins just go in our own lives. And as you look at what happens in revival, it always starts with God's people. Often those people who think they're good, but as they're exposed to God's word, God reveals things in them and God moves. 
We need revival right now. Uh, revival, as you look through history, there's some the Great Awakenings and things like that. I don't know, this was new for me as I, I looked at China. You know, in 1949, there were uh, one million Christians in China. And I'm not sure who does this study, but they say now there's 100 million Christians in China. And in China, for the last 70 years, it's been pretty much illegal to be a Christian. It's, it's varied, you know, come and gone, whatever. But there's been a revival there of many people coming to know Christ. You know, here in northern Nevada, we're roughly 95% unchurched. If those numbers in China are accurate, they are more churched in China than we are in northern Nevada. Doesn't that sound crazy? We live in an area that is less Christians here than in China where it's been illegal on and off for, for 70 years. We need revival. And I want to pray for revival, but I also want to look at Nehemiah where we see revival happen among God's people. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are the answer. I thank you so much that our hope is in you, that we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God, we look around, we see these masks and all this stuff. You're not surprised. You knew this was all going to happen. We look at our political situation and, and, and racism and riots and all this stuff, and you're not surprised. You knew this was going to happen, and you have a plan to use even bad things for good. And bad things are going to happen because we are still sinful people. Uh, there are still plenty of people in the world that don't know you. And things are not always going to be good. But we can trust you through. And I thank you so much for being our rock, being our, our, our sure foundation, that, that rope we can hold on to no matter what. And God, I do ask that, that you would revive our hearts uh, individually, as families, as a church, and that it would spread out, that there would be a, a refreshing of your spirit in us, uh, like, a, like a cold glass of water, maybe splashed in the face on a really hot day, that we would be refreshed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Nehemiah, uh, and I'm not going to go through the whole history. We've been going through Nehemiah for some weeks, but I thought Paul did a great job. I got to watch it because, you know, our production value is now much better. So uh, great online viewership I got to watch. Uh, and Paul, I thought I really liked his example of kind of climbing the hill. And in Nehemiah here, Nehemiah was leading the people to rebuild a wall, and that was an uphill battle. There were, there were people coming against them, there was trouble among God's people, but they finally got to the top of the hill, they completed the wall, and it was finished. And the question that Paul asked, and even for us too, you know, we're in this building, uh, it, it, we're not quite through, I don't think we're quite through the uphill battle yet until, you know, we're in maybe phase three and masks are off. We're still in this uphill climb, but as a church, we've kind of reached this point where we could get comfortable. We could fit a lot of people in this room. We could get comfortable. But as Paul was saying, uh, a cyclist, that's when they gain ground is when they go downhill. That's where you really, I guess, do the pedaling. And they have these new bikes that actually are electric, and you just pedal and they go themselves. We should use those. Those are cool. Um, but for us, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be quite that easy. But we are maybe going downhill, but now is the time where I think God can do great things. And we see that in Nehemiah, that they build the wall, but it really wasn't just about the wall. It was about two other things, I think. It was about God's glory, absolutely. And it was about God's people and what God is doing in and among his people. And so uh, the wall is done. Uh, Paul looked at last week in Nehemiah chapter 8. After the wall is completed, they spend a day reading the Bible. Pretty cool. It's kind of the first spot in the Bible where we see what looks like a pulpit, 
where they build this stage and they go up and they read from the Bible for half a day. And they start getting to know, and by the Bible, I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, probably a couple other books that they had. And they were looking at that, and as Paul uh, read to us last week in Nehemiah 8, they were reading and then they were talking about it. So they would read it, and then the Levites, which were like the pastors, you could say, priests, they would wander around and answer questions. Small groups, the goal was understanding the word, not just religion. If, if you don't know your Bible very much, or, or, or you're new to this Christian thing, and you think it's all about religion, doing these things, Jesus was actually the most anti-religious person ever. I mean, he was all about God, absolutely, but he was not into religion, meaning just doing it for the sake of doing it. He was about life change. He was about hearts that belong to God. And here in Nehemiah, they finish this wall, and it's great. Now they open up the word, and they start reading it, and they start to understand it. Really, a lot of them, it looks like, for the first time. So if you're a note taker, uh, this is in your notes, and you can get the notes on our app, our Common Ground Carson app. But the first one is, revival begins with the right teaching and understanding of the Word of God. Always. Revival begins with the right teaching and understanding of the Word. Not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, but understanding the Word. And here's the second note. Revival always begins among God's people. Meaning, if we want to see great things happen in our area and in our country, it actually begins with us. And we can boil that down even smaller. It begins with with you and with me as individuals. So look with me at Nehemiah 8, 9. I'm going to start in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That, that really sets the basis for what comes next. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy, to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. There's a lot in that one verse, but what are the people doing? After they hear the word taught and they start to understand it, what happens to them? They all start weeping. They get wrecked because of their sin. That's a big deal. You want to see revival? It begins with God's people getting wrecked because of their sin. I had this conversation this week with, with uh, some family members just talking about conviction of sin. You know, and, and being a kid and, and at times, you know, I knew I belonged to the Lord because I hated, I did hate sin. I still did it. But, but whenever I would do it, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do and I would be convicted over it and I would be sad about my own sin. I think every believer has at least some point in their life where they got to know God and they became wrecked because of their own sin. They look in the mirror and they go, what is this that I'm looking at? How could God ever love me? I'm so filthy and I'm so dirty. And there's an aspect of that that's good because we look at God and his standard and then we see where we are. We need to be wrecked over our sin. God's spirit through the word enlightens hearts which leads to conviction and pain over our own sinfulness. You know, in 2 Timothy, uh, as we look at uh, Scripture, and, and uh, Paul writing to Timothy, telling him that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, it's the Word that reveals in Hebrews. We see that it's the Word that exposes our own hearts to us. It says the Word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Meaning God's word is like a scalpel that opens up our soul, our spirit, and shows what's there. So that, not so we can just be disgusted with it, but so that God can deal with it. So God's word reveals sin. And here's the other thing that clearly they're starting to understand. Sin's a big deal. Sin's a big deal. I mean, read through the Bible. Look at your own life, right? Look at our, our family's lives. Sin is a big deal. It was sin that cast Adam and Eve out of paradise. They had that utopia when there was just two of them for a little while. They had the utopia that all of us are kind of wanting, and we're going to get it later in, in eternal life, new heaven and new earth. But they lost it because of sin. And you see sin go on and on. The nation of Israel was brought up, and it was sin that made them exiled out of, out of their country, sent as slaves into foreign nations. It was sin that put Jesus on the cross. I mean, just that picture. Sin is what separates us from God and creates all the pain, but separates us eternally. And it's sin that brought God, took on flesh, came as Jesus, and went to the cross. And, and you, you see Jesus on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they do. They were killing the living God, and they didn't even know it. And he's offering forgiveness. Sin put him on the cross. And when we understand some of sin and our own sin, for me, my sin helped put him on the cross. That should wreck us a little bit. Sin is a big deal. And part of, I think, a lot of times why we, we lack vitality as, as the church is we get so comfortable just with our own sin. It's okay. You know, and, and we have these sins. They don't hurt anybody else. Nobody can see them. Uh, I'm at home in the dark. It's just my thing. But really, that sin is, is a, a barrier between us and God. Now, when we repent and we turn to Jesus for the first time, we're forgiven we're made in a right relationship with him. We're justified, meaning we don't have to fear the punishment for sin because Jesus took it. You know, that, that substitutionary death, we no longer have to die and go to hell forever because Jesus took that for us. But now we do still have sin that creates a, a separation relationally between us and God. And we may be calloused, you know, and if this is you, you have sin in your life, and you're like, well, I don't really care. We need to pray for that. So, they're wrecked over their sin, but look at verse 9 and 10 again. They tell them uh, to stop weeping and stop mourning, verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has, uh, has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make, a great, make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is pretty exciting. So they're wrecked over their sin and they, they're weeping and they're mourning and we're going to see them come back to that later. But right here, they call a timeout with the weeping in the morning. Stop crying. You understand the word Let's go celebrate that. You now understand who God is a little better, what he expects from us. And we see there in, in verse uh, 12, it's because they understood the word that now they're going to go feast. They're going to go celebrate that they understood. Maybe you remember this time in your life where you, you had a glimpse of your sin. 
but then you got to know God, and you had maybe these warring emotions of, oh, I'm so filthy and dirty, but yay, I'm forgiven. You know, oh, <laughs> Morgan, that was a perfect time for that. <laughs> but, we're, you, you know, at the same time, hating our sin, but being filled with joy because we're forgiven for our sin because our God is glorious and wonderful and died for us and gave us life. Here, that's about what's happening. They're getting to know themselves and they're getting to know God. And they say, time out on the weeping in the morning and the, and the fasting. We're going to fast later, but now let's feast. And why? We see here it says, uh, verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Think about that for just, a, that actually gives me chills. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. What is your strength? What, what is it that would lead us to rejoicing? It's not our joy. It's the joy of the Lord. God delights in his people. That's exciting. You know, a lot of times, and, and maybe it depends on how you were brought up, your view of God is God this this being out there uh, that just wants to smite us and, and he has all these rules and he's waiting for us to trip up so he can get us? Or is God this loving father who delights in his people? The joy of the Lord is their strength. He looks at his people and he takes joy in them. It was his joy uh, to, to grab Nehemiah and, and take him there to rebuild this wall. It was his joy to see them brought into safety from surrounding nations. It was his joy to see his own glory among them, which was best for them. It was his joy then for them to understand the word and get to know him and find really salvation anew in him. And this He delights in his people. Do you realize that God delights in you? God takes joy in working in your life. He cares so much about you. You know, again, a lot of times we think corporate and we should, but what about you? You ever think that God just takes a minute and just looks at you and goes, yeah, I made that. I, I made her. I made him. And yeah, they're a little messed up here or there, but they kind of all are, but, but delights. And I have a plan for, for this person right here, you. I have a plan, and I'm going to take you to this place where, yeah, there's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be masks. I, I'm going to take you through these things to mold you, and it's going to be his delight to bring you somewhere. That's awesome. And so here, they hear that God is delighting in you. Let's go celebrate. Let's go drink some wine. Not to get drunk. Let's go drink some wine. Let's go eat some good steak, some good food. And if there's anybody around here that's too poor, give them some. Everybody needs to enjoy this. You know, God's people are generous people. It's a beautiful picture. In revival, we experience a renewal of the joy that is ours in Christ. Think about that. And, and I see this a lot of times in worship. You know, in the singing part of worship. All of this is worship. But when we're singing in worship and people are delighting in him, we can have both. You know, we can have a brokenness over sin and a joyful uh, crying out to God in, in praise. Now look on, if you would. Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together, together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So the second day, now uh, the families get to stay home. The day before, the, all the everybody was there. Here now, it's the heads. It's the leaders. Leaders go, continue to learn from the word, and then come back. Verse 14, and they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. 
and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them, and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So because they're now going back to the word and studying it, they see this feast, this celebration, that it was a remembering what God did bringing Israel out of Egypt. If you remember that story, uh, God brought them out of Egypt miraculously. You have the plagues. Uh, they sinned, and so they had to wander for 40 years in the desert before God then brought them uh, to the promised land. And during that time, they lived in tents. That's what the, a booth here is. It's a, it's a tent uh, made with, with maybe branches or, or cloth or whatever. Picture this scene. To celebrate this, everybody goes out of their house and sets up a, a booth, you know, with branches. They have to go and collect them. Imagine walking through town during this week. Nobody's inside. Everybody's outside, and they're feasting and celebrating, remembering what God had done. You know, here, part of this revival is a renewal of obedience to what God has said in his word. We see this, this uh, renewal, again, of what had been, and they're, they're walking in obedience joyfully, joyfully remembering what he had done. Repentance and confession, then, come next. So we see at the end of this feast, they observe the, the, the Feast of Booths. At the end, they have a solemn assembly. So they come back to their fasting. They come back to their weeping and their mourning. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. When God moves, his people confess and repent of sins. This is always, again, part of revival. Not that many of us in the church are not saved, but meaning a renewal of that repentance. A renewal. Repentance isn't something we just do once when we give our life to Christ. We do it then, but we have to do it over and over and over as we see sin in our lives. And so when God moves, his people confess and repent of sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness awesome. So here, revival, what's it going to take? Seeing our own sin, joy in what Jesus has done for us, but then repentance and confession. These people were confessing their sins. Yes, confession to God is good, but also confession to one another is vital. And as you look at revivals in history, it, it often begins with prayer, prayer groups, and then in that prayer, people are convicted of sin, and they start telling each other about their sin, and it spreads, and it spreads, and then it moves out. We, if we want to see God do great things, this can be boiled down to the individual level. Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of, you need to turn? And is there sin in your life you need to confess, you need to tell somebody? Pick, pick that person wisely, 
but maybe it's time to go tell somebody about your sin. Now, in the rest of chapter 9, uh, verses 4 through 38, we see a prayer. Uh, and it's a prayer of praise. It's a prayer of confessing of sin. It's a prayer remembering the things that God had done. And it leads to something at the end. It leads to a renewal of their commitment. A renewal. Uh, look at verse 38 of chapter 9. It says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So the people here say, we're going to renew our covenant. We're going to renew our faith in God, and we're going to see several things that they do specifically in chapter 10. Chapter 10. So revival happens, and we're going to see three specific things that change. As they make this covenant, there's three specific areas. Here's the first one. Protecting marriage and the home. Look at verse 28 through 30 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods... Oh, I'm going too far. Right there. The first one is marriage. They had this command before. When you go into the land, do not intermarry with the people of the land. Now, this isn't a race thing. I mean, racism is big. This wasn't about race. This was about theology. This was about right belief in God. Because anybody among the nations could, you know, come come to the Jews, come to Israel, and become a Jew. I mean, you look at Jesus' line. Remember Rahab? She was a harlot, and she was a Gentile, and she surrendered to, to Yahweh, the one true God, and she ended up being in the line of our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus. So others could come in. So the issue here isn't race. The issue is right belief in God. And we can apply this right now. How about for us? In the New Testament, we see the same thing. Do not be unequally yoked together. You know, anybody who has witnessed a, a marriage where one is a strong believer and, and the other is not a believer, that's a difficult marriage. And, and if, if you're in that position, you know, the New Testament addresses how to deal with that. But for those not there yet, for those of you not married yet, even some of you real young ones, this is a big deal. The person that you marry is a big deal. You want to be equally yoked together. You want to share this. And so here they make that commitment. We, we're going to no longer be unequally yoked, we're going to marry within the faith. Marriage is a big deal. But then here's the second one we see. Obedience in worship. Verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So here, we go back to the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments. Maybe you remember the Ten Commandments. Uh, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They were told one day a week to not work. Not work, but worship. Uh, not work, but spend time with family and spend time with God. Every seventh year, they were supposed to take a, a sabbatical year. So they had these, these air, ways to, to worship that God gave to them, kind of boundaries. For us, 
we also need to prioritize worship. I think that's the parallel. We don't have a Sabbath day. A lot of times we'll call Sunday the Sabbath day. For the Jews, the Sabbath day was Saturday. Uh, in the early church, because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, uh, the early church began worshiping on, on Sunday instead. But it's no longer a command of a Sabbath like that. But we are called, do not forsake the gathering together. We are, all over in Scripture, we're told how to worship God. You know, that's when we recognize His glory. This coming together, what we're doing is vital. And so here, again, part of revival is obedience in worship. Obedience and worship. Meaning, we prioritize this. We prioritize getting together. It's not one of those things like, oh, summer is here. We're just going to take the summer off. You know, we're going to not worship for three months or, or whatever it is. We need a break from that. We need to continue to worship together and prioritize worship. And then here's the third one. A renewal of generous giving and support of the ministry. Look at verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third of our shekel. Um, a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all of the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground. It is for the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And he goes on. But here we see eight verses on giving. There's kind of one on marriage, you know, another one on, on worship, and eight on giving, eight on stewardship. I think that's interesting. Why? I think our hearts are tied to our wallets, aren't they? And in revival, when people get to know God, part of that faith of growing is seeing everything we own as His. And we become generous and sacrificial givers. So those are really, I think, the three areas where, where we would see if revival's happening, we're going to see marriage protected. We're going to see obedience and worship. Worship is going to grow and become a priority. And also giving, being generous with our stuff. You know, and I think all our stuff, our time, our talents, and our treasure, generosity with those is evidence of God moving among his people. Again, there is a direct correlation between spiritual vitality and stewardship or generosity. So as we, as we kind of wrap this up, you know, we're looking at the Old Testament, a revival there. This is so applicable to us. We need a revival. We need a, a refreshment of God. I, I look at Carson City. I, I look at our nation. All the things going on, Jesus is the answer. He really is. And, and I'm not talking in some just Sunday school way. I'm talking when people surrender to Jesus, they get the tools because they get Jesus to go through this life. And then our hope is in him. Yeah, we're going to vote. But our hope is not in any government. Our, our hope is in Jesus. You know, we're going to hopefully do what we can uh, with oppression. 
you know, with racism and those things. But it's all based on Christ. It's not based on, on a system that we can develop. It's surrender to Jesus. The more people can surrender to Jesus, we're going to see great things happen. But it begins in our own lives. And so that's where I want to start today. We want, we want to pray for God to do great things. But for you, it starts with you. And it starts with me. You know, a lot of times we sit there and go, I, I want to see revival. It'd be great to see God do those things among those people. But what if he wants to start with you? Is there sin that you need to repent of? Is there something that struck you in this that you need to deal with? Let's do that today. Let me pray. Father, we, we do want to see revival. God, and we pray for it. But revival, it's one life at a time. God, we don't want to just see this mass movement for the sake of a mass movement. We want to see individual lives saved. We want to see marriages healed. We want to see kids have moms and dads that love you so, so well, uh, that serve you so well, that these kids are going to thrive and grow up in you. We want to see the ills and the hurts in our society healed by you, by you grabbing people's hearts, beginning with our hearts. God, we want to see change. Jesus, I'm so excited. You're not about religion. You're not about just, just church for the sake of church. You want to see people change. You want to give yourself, you delight in, in working in our lives. Thank you so much for taking your joy in us. And now we find our joy in you. God, I do pray. If we have sin in our lives that we're not wrecked by, wreck us. God, help us to realize our sin. But God, I also pray that you would renew our joy in you, that our forgiveness is in you. Thank you. And then move through us, that this could move throughout our community. God, we want to see change. And we know it's only you can, that can do it. And we are here. We are available to be used by you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.